This week on Making Contact. Adaptation to climate change is not merely a technical issue. It's not merely about building seawalls to protect against rising seas or coming up with new technologies for farming in extreme climates. Religious warfare, ethnic insurgency, and state repression. Is there a link between climate change and the problems plaguing many parts of the world today? Author Christian Parenti thinks so. It's also about changing social relations, specifically redistributing power and wealth to the poor so they have some security to be good stewards of the natural environment. On this edition, Christian Parenti talks about his new book, Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. And he has some advice on how to mitigate an impending catastrophe. I'm Kyung Jin Lee, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. So the thesis of the book is, in a nutshell, that climate change doesn't just look like bad weather. It also looks like religious warfare, ethnic pogroms, insurgency, banditry, state repression. And what I try and do is trace the causality from the climate crisis into these political crises of violence. The idea for the book came to me when I was in Afghanistan, and I was actually under contract to write a different book about Afghanistan. And um, I was researching the heroin trade and the poppy farming in Afghanistan, and I was asking the farmers, why do you grow this illegal crop and risk punishment of the government and the NATO forces? And one part of their answer, again and again, in different parts of Afghanistan over a course of years, was it's very drought resistant. And at first, I didn't even realize there was a drought in Afghanistan. Turns out there's the worst drought in living memory in Afghanistan has coincided with the whole US-led NATO occupation. And opium poppy uses one-fifth the amount of water that wheat uses. In this war, one side, the foreigners and the Afghan government attack poppy. The other side, the Taliban, defend the farmer's right to grow poppy. So it occurred to me that along with the ethnic ideological motivations that would cause Pashtun young men, because the Taliban is a, an ethnic insurgency as well as a religious one, and it draws its support from the Pashtun of the southern parts of Afghanistan, along with ethnic ideology, along with religious ideas, there was this in material incentive that would cause a young man to go fight for the Taliban, which is that that is the side that defends his family's right to grow the only crop that's economically feasible in these drought conditions. And one can't blame any specific drought or any specific set of storms on climate change, but what we can say is there's a pattern that has been predicted by climate scientists for decades and is coming to fruition. And the correlations, as you all know, are burning fossil fuels leads to rising CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. This traps more heat as the temperature rises the climate system begins to unravel. Monsoons become irregular. They come all at once. They don't come when they should. The intertropical convergence zone, the main weather system that travels from the Tropic of Cancer to the Tropic of Capricorn is pulled by the sun and regulates the rainy seasons in most of the tropics is increasingly out of whack. And there's a general pattern of increased drought punctuated by extreme flooding, even though generally the atmosphere is as it gets warmer, holding more water, it comes down all at once in sudden deluges. So the effect on the ground is drought. So I then set off to investigate other examples of, of how this 
would happen, how violence and climate change are connected. And it became clear that climate change doesn't work on its own. It arrives in the global south to a stage preset for crisis. And the forces in history that have preset the crisis in the global south are the militarism of the Cold War and the hot proxy wars of the Cold War, which took place in the global south and have ripped the social fabric of many societies to pieces, undermined social solidarity, and left many places littered with cheap weaponry and lots of men who know how to assassinate and smuggle and torture and operate as either criminals or insurgents or police operatives. The other force that has primed the stage for crisis is economic restructuring, neoliberal economic restructuring, as promulgated and enforced by the World Bank and IMF since the late 1970s. And that has mandated the withdrawal of the state from the economy. And that's translated around the planet again and again into the privatization of state assets like utility companies and transportation companies and ports, cutting support to farmers and herders and fishermen in the forms of loan programs and uh, regulated markets and government-supported cooperatives. And neoliberalism has produced increased poverty throughout the global south. Sometimes it's created increased growth rates. In India, for example, is growing rapidly, and that's associated with, with neoliberalism. But more often than not, its legacy has been economic stagnation, failure even in its own stated terms of reviving these economies, getting them out of debt, causing um, innovation and growth and all that. And along with increasing poverty, crucially, it has led to increased inequality. And inequality is important because deprivation, economic suffering alone, doesn't necessarily cause political instability. Sociologists know that it's relative deprivation that causes political instability. And this could be political instability that one might support, like rebellion and organizing, or it can be political instability that one does not support, like banditry and jihad or criminality. But the thing about relative deprivation is that people tend to take extreme action when they feel that their poverty and suffering is wrong in relationship to what was, what could be, what should be, uh, what is right, and inequality heightens that. So this is the social terrain into which now comes flooding, droughts, etc. The best way to, to unpack this dynamic, this combination of these forces I call the catastrophic convergence, because it's not just climate change, it's climate change exacerbating these pre-existing crises, which is essentially the crisis of imperialism, the crisis created by imperialism. The best way to illustrate this is to give you some examples and tell you some stories. India is a crucial economy to the world economy. It's central to a whole region, and it's central to the whole world economy. And it receives more attention for these uh, robust growth rates, the rise of a nouveau riche. It's minted, I think, 10 billionaires since it began liberalization in 1991. Um, and your tech support calls to Dell Computer are answered there. But outside of urban India, there's another side to, to what's going on with um, liberalization, and that is increased immiseration in the countryside. And at the same time that that's happening, there's a drought that has been 
striking particularly the eastern side of the Indian coast. And there's a Maoist insurgency in India known as the Naxalites, which is a collection of parties that have split and reunited numerous times over the years. It began in Darjeeling, the district of Darjeeling, named, um, well, the T named for it, I think. And for a long time, the Naxalites were contained within West Bengal, more or less, where they began, in the northeastern part of India. But as this drought has intensified over the last 10 to 15 years, they have progressed down the coast. And they follow, they call this the Red Corridor. And they also call it the Drought Corridor. Because the districts in which there is severe drought, soon there follows the Naxalites. And the situation that causes farmers to join the Naxalites isn't just a response to dry weather, it also has to do with the liberalization of the economy. So this is the situation in Andhra Pradesh. The Green Revolution came to India in the late 1960s as a program supported by USAID and the Ford Foundation. And the idea was to avert famine by introducing capital and chemical intensive agriculture to grow foodstuffs at first. Those techniques were adopted by farmers and then applied also to cash crops and they migrated into Andhra Pradesh from the coast and started growing cotton using these methods of chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, etc. The farmers in Andhra Pradesh who grow cotton are having a hard time because of this drought and no longer have the sort of semi-socialist supports that marked so much of Congress's rule in the post-war era in India. I mean, India was hardly, uh, hardly eradicated poverty, um, but there was land reform, there were programs to support farmers. If you compare the political economic history of India to, say, Pakistan, it looks quite progressive. But after 1991, all of those kind of semi-socialist, Keynesian-inspired forms of state intervention into the capitalist economy to support demand and to support indigenous industries are slowly pulled away. And so, one of the main things that missing is missing is any kind of credit system. So the farmers go into debt, they borrow money from moneylenders. The moneylenders don't want the land as collateral, in part because of the environmental crisis. They want their collateral for the loans in the form of crops. The only crop they will lend money for is cotton, because that's the only crop that farmers can't steal. They can't eat it if there's a crisis. They have to sell it. So. What's going on is the farmers are planting more and more cotton, going deeper into debt. The deeper in debt they go, the more they have to borrow money, the more cotton they have to grow, the more cotton there is, the less the price in this downward spiral. And thousands of farmers have committed suicide by drinking in a horribly macabre poetic statement, drinking the pesticides intended for the cotton is the, is the way that people typically kill themselves when they're confronted with this situation. But farmers also commit political homicide, not just suicide, or commit themselves to committing political homicide. That is to say, they join the Naxalites, and they join up with the war. Because the Naxalites come along, and they, they give an explanation and an opportunity, they say, at, and a promise of deliverance from this misery. Those are the mechanisms by which the Naxalites follow the drought. It's linked through this process of debt and specifically around GMO cotton and its role in destabilizing the economy there. 
The response of the Indian state has been sort of classic counterinsurgency in that it uses some carrot and some stick. But um, generally, they have applied violence, not in a Guatemalan fashion of you know, scorched earth, but more surgically, assassinating, detaining, torturing, jailing, trying, and very, very problematically, increasingly, setting up private paramilitary forces, sometimes made up of ex-Naxalites who have been re-educated after detention. And this is a you know, classic old feature of counterinsurgency that goes all the way back to the Plains Wars with Native American nations. And those forces, the Salvajudum, as they're known, are reminiscent of the paramilitaries in Colombia and already very problematic, but will, I think, become a very destabilizing force in the future. The assumption of the military and the paramilitary police is that they control these guys, but they don't. These are lumpenized gangsters, criminals, traumatized veterans of this war, and they're out there on their own, and they may or may not be following some agenda. Whether or not one agrees with that agenda, the point is that what the state is doing inevitably is introducing bands of armed men and cheap weaponry into a society that is in trauma. This crisis doesn't just happen um, in the countryside. There's, there can be tremendous displacement between the site of where climate change is taking hold and where the violence gets expressed. And the argument becomes more attenuated, but I think is still valid. In none of these situations am I arguing that climate change is the primary cause, the only cause. I mean, Afghanistan, that war was not caused by climate change, but it's exacerbated by it. The Naxalite Rebellion was not caused by climate change, but it's exacerbated by it. And in the North, it is, I think, already beginning to help animate the incipient police state that we have in this country and, to some extent, in Europe. And the, the central issue, I think, domestically is migration. And the right is increasingly, while they deny climate change, some elements of them don't. The mainstream of the right denies climate change, but some elements of the right don't. And they're articulating a xenophobic agenda of authoritarian anti-immigrant repression in terms of the aesthetics of the lifeboat, um, fair, the the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the right-wing, xenophobic, anti-immigrant group that Garrett Harding actually was a founding member of, has actually created a front group called Progressives for Immigration Reform. And they're at the forefront of articulating this conservation through border militarization as a, a model. And you have a lot of people on talk radio, who call themselves conservationists and then use that as a justification to keep people out and blame. And they, they use a lot of environmental arguments. They say, yes, the carrying capacity, the footprint of this society is, has reached its limit, and we therefore can't allow any more people in here. And the, the immigrants who are here need to be identified, rounded up, jailed, punished, deported, treated as second-class citizens. One of them, Deborah Walker, she calls herself an environmentalist and is it's, you know, I mean, I don't know what else to call her if you read some of these quotes other than just a staunch racist. So that's one way wealthy economies are affected by violence that has some root 
in climate change. I mean, obviously, I'm not arguing that border militarization is caused by climate change, but increasingly, this is an important contributing factor. In other words, climate violence in the North is generally expressed as repression or an increase of the authoritarian project of surveillance, incarceration, militarized policing. You're listening to Christian Parenti speaking about his latest book, Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. He spoke recently at the Hillside Club in Berkeley, California, at an event presented by KPFA Radio. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or to get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Christian Parenti, Unstable Climate, Unstable People. Now the good news, if there is any. So the task at hand is both adaptation, which is technological and social, building social relations that can allow people to embrace new technologies that can help societies be resilient enough to deal with the extreme weather and produce enough food and share it enough to avoid social calamity and war. Social and technical adaptation and then mitigation is cutting emissions. And there are some on the left who see mitigation as unimportant. There's a type of catastrophism on the left, some elements of the left, that almost welcomes the idea of a civilizational collapse because it's seen as a civilizational transformation. Um, but I dissent from that view quite strongly. I think that it's unrealistic to think that if this society crumbles into chaos, that there's going to be much room for progressive social change if the climate system is spinning out of control and getting worse and worse and worse. So what that means is we have to get capitalism which is the culprit in all of this, to come up with technical solutions to the climate crisis. This is not the same as solving all environmental crises. And I think that's another thing that happens sometimes when we think about climate change. Because of its magnitude, it can get conflated with all the other environmental crises. I mean, there's you know, deforestation, the overfishing of the seas, soil depletion, all of these problems that will exist even if the climate crisis is solved. And I mean, one does not have to abandon the position that capitalism is irreconcilably in conflict with nature to also hold the position that capitalism actually has to switch from fossil fuels to clean technology or the whole climate system will unravel. Marx and Engels were the first you know, who actually theorized a, a kind of catastrophic conflict between nature and capitalism. They, relying on the work of um, Justice von Liebig, the father of soil chemistry, he talked about the, the problem of, he tr tried to understand why soil was depleting, and it was basically because food and clothing was taken from the countryside, consumed in cities, and then flushed down the rivers. And not, it's 
its elements, its constituent elements, not returned to the soil. So wool, flax, meat, vegetables, taken to cities, dumped down the Thames. And so Marx and Engels expanded this into a larger problem, and not just the problem, the contradiction between the countryside and town, but the contradiction between capitalism, a system that can grow infinitely, potentially, and the earth, which is finite. So there may, in fact, be a metabolic rift that is irreconcilable. But capitalist societies, through the socialistic elements of state planning and guidance and control of private wealth, has managed to solve some or mitigate, to some extent, previous environmental crises. The scale is completely different, but consider the, the crisis in urban America in the 19th century. There was waves of disease that actually you know, got so bad that even the rich, um, though they could avoid it, couldn't avoid it completely, and epidemics would kill them as well. And it was in response to that local environmental crisis that was a basic problem of sanitation that the progressive movement and good government types started planning cities and started intervening and basically solved a local environmental crisis. We've also seen the air cleaned up, the water cleaned up due to government intervention, regulation of industry. Those are not adequate solutions. They don't solve the problem. But it is possible to change specific pieces of this larger problem without thinking that we have to only change the whole thing before any one constituent piece can be addressed. And I think it's important for us to see the climate crisis in that regard, that if there is a solution to the climate crisis, that does, that's not the same as reconciling with nature and having a completely sustainable society. What it is is just buying time to stave off what could be catastrophic and abrupt climate change. So that's sort of an uncomfortable position, I think, for some people on the left, to have to think about what kind of policies are going to make this economy, because this, this is the thing. I mean, we have a few decades, so I really don't think we can create a new society in that time. So it's this society that has to address this with new technologies. And that, that means, you know, confronting the fossil fuel industries. And so, to wrap up, there are some things that can happen, even in this country, even with this insane proliferation of climate denialism. In other words, without getting the Republicans to embrace climate legislation. These are some things that can happen immediately. The EPA has the obligation to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Activists sued and fought for 10 years to force this through. And it, finally, in 2007, the Supreme Court agreed, yes, the EPA has the obligation under the Clean Air Act of 1970 to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. George Bush just ignored this. They said, okay, well, whatever. Obama has promised to follow the law. And we're waiting for rules. The first set of rules came down that regulated greenhouse gas emissions through the EPA nationally on vehicle emissions. But we're waiting for smokestacks, the tailoring rules for smokestacks, to come down. And there's been delay and delay and delay. But if those rules are robust enough, and this doesn't require getting John Boehner or anyone else on board, if those rules are robust enough, that is the equivalent of a de facto carbon tax. And a lot of liberals uh, would shy away from using those words, but that is what we want. We want a carbon tax. But because taxes and the EPA as bad guys is a right-wing talking point, a lot of professional environmentalists shy away from it. But really what could happen is EPA regulations could 
essentially close down lots of coal plants because they're too dirty. The way it would work would be that the, the plants could actually operate if they wanted to, but they would just have to pay these fines, and that would be the de facto carbon tax. So they would be shut down, and new investment would be channeled into cleaner technology, clean tech, like windmills and solar power and hydrokinetics and tidal power and all that sort of stuff. The other thing that could be done right now is the government could use its purchasing power to cut its emissions and jumpstart the clean tech sector. The federal government and state governments, if you combine their economic activity, are more than one-third of the U.S. GDP. This is another thing that many progressives and liberals don't articulate because, again, it's a right-wing talking point. And uh, the right is accusing the Obama administration, which is in no way socialistic, of being socialist. So then people, you know, they don't want to say, yeah, actually, you know, the U.S. does sort of have a mixed economy. One, more than one-third of economic activity is the public sector. What could we do with that? And what we could do with that is if you know, the federal government has the largest fleet of vehicles, largest fleet of buildings, is the largest energy consumer in the economy. If it committed itself to purchasing clean tech, clean power, come up with a schedule for bringing online wind farms and solar farms so that the federal government would be the market and it could shift completely to clean tech. If it, whenever possible, bought only electric vehicles and built an infrastructure for charging them, at first, of course, there'd be you know, long-haul vehicles that the post office uses that would have to remain diesel or gasoline because battery technology wouldn't be there. But if the majority of the post office's vehicles, which is 140 vehicles, were moved to electric, that would be good in and of itself if all the buildings were retrofitted, the, the federal government owns 450,000 mostly really, really large office buildings. If they were all retrofitted so that they reduced their energy consumption and retrofitted possibly, or the new ones built so that they could actually produce more power than they consume, that would be good in and of itself. But what all these things would do would also have the knock-on effect of creating economies of scale for the clean tech sector, which is currently stalled out and doesn't have markets. There's one firm that retrofits, that basically builds electric trucks, and if they had orders, you know, they're currently, they get orders of one, two, three trucks here and there. If they got orders of, you know, a hundred trucks every X amount of months for the next five years, they could buy all of their components in bulk, and that alone would probably reduce their costs about 25%, I think. Once electric vehicles and clean power become competitive with fossil fuels and, and energy from uh, fossil fuel driven vehicles and energy from dirty coal, then the private sector can switch over because it will make economic sense. So I'm not describing what I think is the ideal future. It's just a realistic response given what we have, given the political situation, given the technical situation, and I think it's actually doable. I mean, and also, you know, another heartening fact in all this is there's tons of money to do this, right? I mean, corporate America is sitting on $1.8 trillion of uninvested cash. It has more cash on hand than at any time since 1956, according to the Federal Reserve. That money is looking for, yes, labor to exploit and nature to transform, but it's not... It's not going anywhere because the, the economy is stalled out. If there was this push to clean tech, there would, there would be plenty of money from the private sector going into this stuff. 
So that doesn't solve all the problems of the metabolic rift. That doesn't reconcile humanity and nature. That doesn't solve the problem of exploitation and inequality. But those are some realistic things that could happen right now under these conditions to address this problem. That was Christian Parenti. His latest book, Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence, is published by Nation Books. To hear the full, unedited version of his talk and the question and answer session, go to our website, radioproject.org. Special thanks to KPFA Radio. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Kyungjin Lee. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.